This morning, we will be taking a look at Revelation chapter 5, particularly verses 1 to 10. Now, before we dive into the text, I would just like to remind you of the circumstances in which the book of Revelation was written. The book of Revelation, again, was written by the Apostle John during his exile on the Isle of Patmos. Now, the specific date of the book itself is generally believed to have been written either in 54 to 68 AD during the reign of Emperor Nero or during the reign of Emperor Domitian in 81 to 96 AD. Now, during the time of both of these emperors, the church experienced unimaginable persecution. In fact, by the time, at this time, John is believed to be the last remaining apostle. According to church tradition, Peter was said to have been crucified upside down, and shortly after, uh, the apostle Paul was said to have been beheaded during the reign of Nero. And so keeping this cultural climate in mind, John receives a series of revelations on the Lord's day. Again, we read that the book is a prophecy according to Revelation verse chapter 1. It was communicated to the Apostle John by an angel. And it is a revelation according to verse 1. Of Jesus Christ. Now, John in chapter 1, verse 19, is commanded to write the things which he has seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. And let me just say a lot of the eschatological differences of the book of Revelation spawns from the nature and timing of the things that were written. Just how much of the things which are and the things which will take place after these are left to be fulfilled? Does the book follow a linear progression in time? And if so, how much of it is past and how much of it is still future? Or was the book written as a model of what the church experiences repeatedly throughout different times in history? Then there's the question of the millennium. What is the nature of the millennium? Is the millennium present or future? Is it spiritual or physical? Will there be a golden age or an earthly kingdom set up before the final consummation? Now, as important as all of these questions are, I want to remind you once again that The book of Revelation is about the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so his glory is on display throughout this letter. Particularly in chapter 5, we are arrested with his glory and his power and his grace. Now the entire scene in chapter 5, of course, begins in chapter 4. In chapter 4, as you may recall, John is called up by a voice 
in the spirit. The doors of heaven are open and he is ushered into the throne room of God. God the Father in all of his majesty and splendor is pictured as sitting on the throne. He is worshipped by angels and the 24 elders because he is holy, eternal, and sovereign. God is sovereign in creation. Again, Revelation 4.11, the elders say, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you have created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. You see, we see here that God is worthy to be worshipped because he is sovereign in creation. Now, some people miss the fact that the sovereignty of God in creation entitles him to be sovereign over his creation as well. In fact, it is because he is the sovereign creator in chapter 4 that gives him the right to be the the sovereign redeemer in chapter 5. And so, again, we read in chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. Now, my sermon outline this morning will follow, will follow these headings. First, the weeping of John, the worthiness of Christ, and the worship of the world. Again, three words. Weeping, worthiness, and worship. First, let us consider the weeping of John. Why was John weeping? John was weeping according to the text because there was no one who was worthy in heaven or on earth, neither angel nor man, who could open the book and break the seals. Now, this answers the question of what caused the weeping of John, but not the why. To understand why John is weeping, we must understand what the book signified. And to understand what the book signified, we must turn to the Old Testament. In general, the book of Revelation uses a lot of language and imagery that can be found in the writings of particularly the prophets. And the best interpreter of scripture are the scriptures. And so keep in mind that the book, according to Revelation 5, is described as being sealed with seven seals, with writing on the inside and on the back. Now, when we read in Revelation 5 of a book, 
we should really be thinking of a scroll or a parchment with seven seals. And if we turn to the prophet Ezekiel, we find mention of a similar scroll. Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 9 to 10, states this. Then I looked, and behold, a hand was extended to me, and lo, a scroll was in it. When he spread it out before me, it was written on the front and the back, and written on it were lamentations, mourning, and woe. Now, in Ezekiel chapter 1, the prophet, like John, sees a similar vision of God on his judgment throne. In chapter 2, the prophet is commanded to eat a scroll that contains writing on the front and the back. This scroll is a scroll of judgment against Israel for her idolatry, for it contains a message of woe and lamentation. And so going back to the book of Revelation, when you get to chapter 6 and onwards, judgment is exactly what takes place as each of the scrolls are broken. Each seal that is broken releases another terrible judgment. And so the scroll contains the plans for the judgment of the wicked. But not just the judgment of the wicked, but also the redemption of God's people. Now the book that is mentioned again in Revelation 5 also seems to be a reference to Daniel 12, 1 to 4. In Daniel chapter 12, The text states this. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many, and those who lead the many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Now, we should not be surprised to learn that the judgment of the wicked is also salvation of the righteous. This is like in the days of Noah. The judgment of the flood was also a means of salvation for the people of God. And so this book again contains God's future plan for the world and the church. And John weeps because the knowledge of the future remains hidden. It is sealed. If you recall in the beginning of chapter 4, the voice that invites John into heaven promises to show him the things which are to take place after. But now in chapter 5, there is no one who can open the book or look into it. And so he weeps. What are, what are to become of the churches? 
many were already martyred for the sake of Christ. If you recall in Revelation 6.10, the martyrs cry out from the altar, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? The answer, until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. Again, the number of martyrs from that time to this day is not yet complete. I remind you that Christians under the reign of Nero and later Domitian experienced unimaginable persecution. As one author puts it, speaking of, the, of these emperors, the tyrants were not contented with death only, to bereave the life from the body. The kinds of death were divers. Whatever the cruelness of man's invention could devise for the punishment of man's body was practiced against the Christians. Stripes and scourging, drawings, tearings, stoning, Plates of iron laid upon them burning hot, deep dungeons, racks, strangling in prisons, the teeth of wild beasts, gird irons, gibbets, and gallows, tossing upon the horns of bulls. Moreover, when they were thus killed, their bodies were laid in heaps, and dogs there left to keep them, that no man might come to bury them. And so John is weeping. John weeps until one who is worthy comes forth. In Revelation 5 to 7, it states, And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, The root of David has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So as John weeps, he says that there is someone who appears between the elders and the four living creatures in the throne room. The elders say, look, a lion. And John looks and sees not a lion, but a lamb. A lamb as if slain, but standing with seven horns representing the, the perfection of his power and seven eyes, which represent the fullness of the spirit. And so John beholds one who is worthy to take the book and to break its seals. It is not an angel or an elder, but it is the lion who is the lamb. And so the lamb ascends to the throne of God and takes his seat with him. He takes the scroll from the right hand of the father, for he is worthy to judge the wicked. Brothers and sisters, 
Let me just say that the book of Revelation should be a comfort to believers around the world who are being persecuted. And not only should it be a cause of comfort for the persecuted, but a cause for fear to the wicked. You see, God has fixed the day when he will slay the wicked. And not just the persecutors of the church, but all of the wicked. I say to those of you who do not trust Christ, you will be numbered with the wicked, in which the vengeance of Almighty God will fall. Therefore, flee to Christ from certain doom and eternal destruction. For no one will be able to withstand the wrath of the Lamb when he returns. Though nations and kings will take their stand against him, in one fell swoop they will all be defeated. And so today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe the gospel. Well, returning to our text, not only do we see God's defined plan for the judgment of the wicked, but as I said before, we also see God's plans of redemption for his people. Again, beginning in verse 8, we read, When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. You see, in verse 8, we read that the four living creatures and the 24 elders sang a new song. Now, if you recall, in Revelation chapter 4, the song was, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. But now the song is, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. The first song states that God is worthy because he is the creator. While the second song states that the lamb is worthy because he is the redeemer. Moving on to point number two, let us consider the worthiness of Christ. Why is he worthy? Christ is worthy because he is sovereign in redemption. He is sovereign in redemption because of what he accomplished on the cross, namely the salvation of a particular 
people. This is the doctrine of limited atonement. Now, throughout the New Testament, there are three terms that are used in conjunction that describe Christ's atonement. Those words are redemption, reconciliation, and propitiation. The first term, redemption, means to buy back by paying a price and actually acquiring something. The idea of freedom is also implied. And this is the concept found in Revelation 5.9. But we also find this term used in places like Ephesians 1, verse 7, where we read, In him, that is Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Paul says that the currency to purchase those in slavery to sin and the devil was transacted in blood. The cost of freedom was the death of Christ. Ask yourself, is he not worthy? Again, the next term that describes the atonement is reconciliation. Reconciliation that brings peace between God and man. This is Romans 5 verse 10. For if while we were God's enemies... We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? What is the opposite of peace? It is war. And Paul says that while we were his enemies, God the Father made peace with us through the death of his son. Which one of us would sacrifice our only child in order to bring about peace with our enemies? And which child would be willing to lay down his life to save those who despised and rejected him? Again, I say, is Christ not worthy? Finally, there is the word propitiation, which is the appeasement or satisfaction of the wrath of God. This word is found in places like 1 John 4.10. In 1 John 4.10 we read, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Christ satisfied the wrath of God. In other words, God was pleased with the death of his son. In fact, the prophet Isaiah puts it this way in Isaiah 53.10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him. Well, someone might object and say, that's cosmic child abuse. But those who cry cosmic child abuse know nothing of the holiness of God or the righteousness of God 
or the justice of God, or even the goodness of God. For it is because God is good that he must punish sin. And sin will either be punished in his son, or it will be punished in you. And so to those of us whose sins have been laid upon Christ, we know that he is worthy to be worshipped. For every lie that we told, for every act of selfishness and pride, sexual immorality, drunkenness, all of it was laid upon him and the price was paid in full with his blood. Brothers and sisters, again, I say to you, he is worthy. Now at this point, There is a dilemma for some of our brethren who do not hold to a particular redemption or a limited atonement. The problem is this. If the atonement is general, that is to say that Christ died for everyone, then why do some people still end up in hell? How can Christ redeem and reconcile people and yet some men will still suffer the torments of hell. To take it a step farther, how can Christ have propitiated the wrath of God for everyone? And yet the book of Revelation tells us that there will be some who will be cast into the lake of fire. Well, someone may quickly point out the necessity of faith to make the atonement effectual. They say Christ has made the provision, and we must avail ourselves of it by faith. Now, while it is true that we must repent and believe the gospel, the real question is, who will believe? Who is it that will believe our message? May I remind you of Jesus' own words in John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, verses 14 to 18, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I have received from my Father. And then jumping down to verse 24, it says, The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Jesus says that the reason that the Jews did not believe was because 
they were not his sheep. Christ then not only offers himself to those who do believe, but through his death, he actually secures the faith to believe. And Christ says in very certain terms that he died not for everyone, but for his sheep. The clear biblical teaching of scripture then is that Christ died for those who would believe the gospel. Those who would believe the gospel are the elect from every nation, tongue, and tribe. These were the ones who were predestined before the foundation of the world to be conformed to the image of Christ. But one final argument remains, and it is this. Doesn't the word world mean world? And doesn't the Bible say that Jesus died for everyone? For instance, 1 John 2, 2, the apostle writes, And he himself, that's Christ, is the propitiation for our sins, and not just for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. What do we do with passages like these? Well, the context of a word often determines its meaning. This is the nature of language. So, for instance, make a right at the intersection means something totally different from he did what was right. The first sentence, the word right, refers to direction, whereas in the second, it refers to doing what was just. Again, the context often determines the meaning of a word. And so when we see the word world being used, we must consider the context. We must not only consider the immediate context in which the text is found, but also the cultural context that brings its own nuance. What do I mean by that? Well, in the mind of a Jew, the word world was often a synonym for the word Gentile or nations. In fact, we see a biblical precedent set in Romans 11 where Paul refers to the Gentiles as the world and he uses the two, ter- the two terms interchangeably. Romans 11 verses 11 to 12 states, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? And he's speaking, speaking of the Jews in relation to the Gentiles. May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgressions is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Now, if we think back in Genesis twenty-two eighteen, this is exactly the promise that God makes to Abraham when he says, All of the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. All of the world, without distinction to ethnicity, will be blessed. Which is different from saying everyone in every ethnicity will be blessed. And so the promise made in Genesis is the promise kept in Revelation 5. Again, Christ in Revelation 5 is the sovereign redeemer because he is the Lamb of God who purchases men and women from every nation, tongue, and tribe with his own blood. 
what is the proper response of the people of God? To complain about free will? No, brethren. It is worship. It is worship, for he has accomplished redemption on behalf of his people. Moving on to our final point. Let us consider the worship of the world. The worship of the world. Once more, Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 to 10, we read, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you are slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests for our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Having considered what the elders and the four living creatures who carry with them the prayers of the saints sang, we must not miss what they are doing. They are worshiping God. You see, God has a plan for the future of this world. And that is that there is coming a time when all of heaven and earth will worship him. Christ, according to the book of Revelation, says innumerable men and women from every nation, tongue, and tribe who will, who will forever worship and adore him. Now this is the picture of the age to come. But the reality is not yet. For now we remain in this age where there is work to be done. For the full number of God's elect has not yet been reached. There are still sheep that must be brought in. And the amazing thing is that Christ accomplishes this task primarily through his church. I remind you of the words of Christ in Matthew 28. Again, Matthew chapter 28, a very familiar portion of scripture. It is, of course, the Great Commission. But notice what comes before. Beginning from verse 16, the text says, But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. When the disciples saw the risen Lord, they worshipped him. Why? Because going back to Revelation 5, 9, he is worthy. And it is in the midst of their worship that the Great Commission is given. You see, the response of the church, when it has a right view of who Jesus is and what he has done, is worship. And worship should be the church's motivation for evangelism, 
missions, and discipleship. As someone once said, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their face before the throne of God, missions will be no more. Again, God's plan will not fail. It will succeed. This confident assertion is grounded in the truth that Christ is building his church. As the one who sits on the throne, he possesses all authority in heaven and in earth. This truth alone should compel us to go. It should cause us to cross streets and oceans for Christ. For the strength of the church comes from him. We must take seriously the promise given to the church at the end of the Great Commission. Lo, I am with you always. As Pastor Greg mentioned last week, this blessed promise to the people of God is found in numerous places throughout the scriptures. Christ is with us. He is here among us even right now here at Grace Fellowship Church. Again, it should be an encouragement to the church that Christ isn't sitting idly by on his throne waiting for man and his supposed free will before he can act. No, brethren. His heavenly throne has meaning. It has purpose. May I remind you of 1 Corinthians 15, 25, which says, He, speaking of Christ, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Matthew Henry, in commenting on this verse, says, The Redeemer must reign till his enemies be destroyed and the salvation of his church and people accomplished. And when this end is attained, then he will deliver up the power which he had only for this purpose, though he may continue to reign over his glorified church and body. The Redeemer shall certainly reign till the last enemy of his people be destroyed, till death itself is abolished, till his saints revive and recover perfect life, never to be in fear and danger of dying anymore. And so what is Christ doing on his heavenly throne right now? He is reigning. He is subduing his enemies. Let me just say that this fact should be an encouragement to our brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering persecution. Christ is reigning in the Middle East and in North Korea and in Somalia and in Sudan. He is reigning in China and he will crush his enemies under his foot. He will judge the wicked and he will redeem his people. We will forever worship our king throughout endless days for his justice and because of his grace. Well, in closing, I want to remind us today of those 
from a bygone era who believed that Christ was worthy to be worshipped and the effect that this truth had on their lives. We think of the first great awakening in the days of men like Jonathan Edwards, preacher and a missionary to the Indians, and Samuel Davies, who was said that hundreds of slaves in Virginia came to faith because of his evangelistic efforts. Then there were the great revivals in England and Scotland in the days of men like John Owen and Matthew Henry and John Bunyan. We think of the exploits of John Eliot and William Carey, who is considered to be the father of, modern, of the modern missions movement. And then time would not permit us to speak of William Tennant and David Livingston, Robert Morrison and Henry Martin, all of whom right now sing that most blessed song in heaven, Worthy is the Lamb. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your Son. For indeed, he is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our adoration and our praise. We thank you for what he has done in redeeming a people for his own possession. Lord, it was nothing in us for, indeed, while we were yet your enemies, you made peace. You made peace by way of your own blood. You have purchased us and freed us from the power of sin Satan, and the world. We are set free because of what God has accomplished. You are sovereign in creation and you are sovereign in redemption. And we say hallelujah. Worthy are you, God. And worthy is the Lamb. We pray, Lord, that this Reflection, this meditation might strengthen your people this week. Throughout, throughout all of our trials, may we look to Christ. May we remember that he is reigning and ruling. He is subduing his enemies and bringing everything to his expected end. And so we thank you, Lord. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your justice, your righteousness, your holiness, and your mercy. All because of Christ and what he has done. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.